the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we are Free Riding Friday. So welcome, Ed. Well, hey, Ron, how you doing? I'm great. What a month, huh? <laughs> oh, my gosh. The Cubs win the World Series, and Donald Trump is our president. I, that's, I think, two of the four signs of the apocalypse, I'm pretty sure. Okay, you said something about the Cubs winning the series that really piqued my curiosity about sabermetrics and the guy who used to work for the Red Sox who lifted their curse and then went over to the Cubs and lifted their curse. You said he's destined for the Hall of Fame. Oh, absolutely. Theo Epstein is the guy's name. Theo Epstein. Yep, Theo Epstein. He's uh, he was the general manager of the Red Sox when they broke their curse, and I guess it was two thousand eight or nine. I'm not sorry. Sorry, apologize, Red Sox fans. I don't remember the exact uh, year, but uh, and then now he's 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 done it with the Cubs. So I, I think destined for the Hall of Fame on on merits on those merits alone. Wow, wow. And Ed, do you have any idea his background? I mean, is he is he a wonk like James or is he more oh, yeah. of a baseball he's, guy or he is absolutely a follower of the whole saber metric theories and stuff. So he, um, let's see, he, he's, he's just, let's see, born in 1973. So he's just, you know, 42 years old and, and he's already done all of this other stuff. He, I believe is a lawyer by training. Okay. A lawyer. Wow. Okay. Cause, yep. because James is like a, Harvard economist, Harvard educated economist, and right, and Correct. mathematician. Correct. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, he and 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 also a a, uh, a security guard at a bean factory, which is which <laughs> when Bill James started his whole thing, he was the security guard at a bean manufacturing plant. <laughs> well, that's probably just so he could have time to do that's all. Exactly this. Correct. That's exactly correct. The same way Einstein worked in the patent office, right? <laughs> yep. Yep. So. That's awesome. Yep. Well, that, that's that's really intriguing that that could put, I, yeah, I never thought of it, but yeah, I, could, I guess that would put him in the Hall of Fame, wouldn't it? I think so. I think so. I mean, he, two, two teams like that to, to reshape and, and change the course of, of baseball history. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, look, you go ahead and start uh, from your stack, and we'll go from there. 
my my stack is either bulging or it's non-existent because it's just it's completely riff off the cuff like what I've been thinking about since the events of of the last couple of weeks. By the way, we're doing this free rider fr- Friday two weeks early because, well, a week early because we have the Thanksgiving break and the station is dark, so a uh, little bit a little bit early on the trigger. So it hasn't been quite uh, a month, but it, it's been an incredible three weeks. And I, I guess I have to say this: I was way wrong about the election. I I had bought hook, line, and sinker into the prediction markets and and Nate Silver. And 538, and when when they, on the morning of the election, both had the same map, the same electoral map, I thought, wow, they, 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 they've got this down to a science now that, you know, but when, when the prediction markets are lined up with the, with the polls, and I guess what I didn't realize is it, it was basic rookie mistake, one was influencing the other and vice versa. It was an echo chamber, wasn't it? I mean, Nate yep. Silver, the couple of days before the election, he hedged his bets on the polls. He, you had, but you had to dig deep in the stories to read it. He said these polls could be way wrong because of sampling errors. Mm-hmm. And yeah. but you, you never read that in the headlines in the first you know thirty paragraphs of most stories. There's only three polls that nailed it, Ed. There's only three, and and one private pollster. But okay, go 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 on, go on. What what else oh, well, you got? No, and and that's that that's really the gist of it is that that I, I you know my my faith is now shaken. It was always shaken in pollsters. I never really bought the the polls all that much, but I, I I really was a big believer in the prediction markets. But now my faith is completely shaken in the prediction markets. At least at least for right now, because you ha- clearly they missed Brexit, which I, I I gave them a pass on because it was already so close that. You know, they it wasn't until the last minute that they said heavily that it wasn't going to pass, and then it did. Whereas, whereas this has been going on for months and months and months that the prediction was that it was Hillary Clinton all the way back to I think I remember talking with you about it, maybe even right after the the nomination of Donald Trump that he she had a seventy percent chance then, and it went as high as ninety percent. Absolutely, yeah, just unraveled. So, well, let me ask you this: prediction markets can be gamed. And we know that now there's built-in precautions against that. But do you think that the prediction markets were gamed? I haven't studied it enough really to, to make a determination on that. My gut would be no. I mean, who who would bother? It's really the, my, my thought on it. You know, maybe they would. But especially the one that I was following, which was predict it. I didn't really look all that closely at Iowa. Perhaps I should have. But the 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 predicted you know you can only bet a dollar maximum on each particular bet i don't see why anybody would want to game it it's also a pain in the butt to game it because you got to get a different email address for every dollar bet that you're going to make right and i, I you know it just it, it just would be a, an extraordinary amount of effort for a particular campaign to have to go through to try to game the prediction market i don't know I could be yep. wrong. I, I was clearly wrong about the prediction market and the election, so I definitely could be wrong about this. Well, it gives me pause about that theory is, you know, why would you game it for Brexit? Um, but but um, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if a campaign uh, tried to game it. I mean, it, it, it happened in trade, I believe, a few times. Uh, I, I'm just trying to figure out, Ed, why would they were so drastically wrong? 
Yeah. Yeah, that, see, well, the thing is with in-trade run is that you could easily game that one because it was it truly was a bet, and it was unlimited. Like, you could go place $1,000 on a particular candidate or outcome or whatever it was inside that prediction market, whereas, whereas uh, predict it li- limits that. I thought in-trade was limited, too. Uh, I know I always. It's gone now, so, yeah, I was definitely is. But I don't think in-trade was. I think that was, it was a... That was, was part of, the, or it might have had a higher limit or something. That was part. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. <clears throat> why they thought it was gambling? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is why Predicted has been able to to skirt under the radar. But until well, until they show, show show me something new, I'm I'm no longer buying in. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Um, well, the three polls Ed, that got it, I'm sure you know this. The Investors Business Daily nailed it. They also nailed 2012 election. I mean, they, I mean, to like the tenth of a decimal point. Um, wow! They got this one. L.A. Times got it. This poll was poo-pooed by everybody, including Nate Silver, for oversampling it. In its sample, it had a group of uh, a weighted sample that was continuously polled. They polled them, you know, week after week after week, the same people, mm-hmm. and um, they nailed it. L.A. Times nailed it. A private pollster who was in the Trump campaign, John McLaughlin, he's out here at Hoover Institute. I heard him interviewed several times on Larry Kudlow. And weeks before the election, Ed, this guy was saying, Larry, we're going to take states you never thought possible. And now he was very cagey about it because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't release any numbers because he was under Mm -hmm. contract. But he nailed it. He absolutely nailed it. And the the real surprising one that I've never heard of before was... um, Trafalgar uh, poll that mm-hmm. um, the guy who runs this uh, and I'm, I forget where it's out of I want to say Pennsylvania but I'm not sure uh, he said anyway I'm going to either be I'm either going to be thought of as a you know <laughs> as prescient at the day after the election or an idiot and be written off and forgotten forever but his whole thing was looking for people who hadn't voted in a while. And, and trying mm-hmm. to get that, them into the sample, because that's one thing that pollsters can't predict. They can't predict turnout, and they can't necessarily, it's not easy for them to find people that haven't voted in decades. And, you know, half the population doesn't vote, so you know they're out there. But his question was, after he asked you how you were going to vote, your opinions, he'd say, and Ed, how's your neighbor gonna, who's your neighbor going to vote for? And he waited that, and he waited that in his algorithm because when you started asking that question, nobody was saying Hillary. Everybody was all, oh, "Well, my neighbor's going to vote for Trump." <laughs> and he waited that, and he nailed it too, along with these uh, two others. So interesting, interesting stuff. So, so let me ask you: When you say nailed it, do you mean they got the the, the electoral college right, or they just got the the, the total the 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 Popular vote, which is another subject we can talk about, uh, the Electoral College and popular vote. What, what, what do you mean nailed it? Yeah, I think I think the, the vote by state. By state. Okay, so, yep. All right, got it, got it, got it. Yep. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I haven't looked uh, deep enough into these three to know what they said about the nationwide vote. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of speculation about that and... Did people vote that weren't eligible and and all of that? I mean, who knows? You know, you know oh, the, the, yeah. the, the the best analogy I've heard Ed about this being illegitimate because he didn't win the popular vote is the nineteen sixty one World Series, and you know more about it than I do. But apparently, the the Yanks 
blew away mm-hmm. the Pirates in terms of home runs, but the, oh yeah, the Pirates no, it's, won it's, the games. That's well, the Pirates won the. I, th- I, I and and I'm I'm from, from memory here, but I believe that the the Pirates won four games, all of them by like one or two runs maximum, and in the other three games, the Yankees had complete blowouts. It was right? like fifty-five and, twenty-seven over the series. Yeah, some crazy number of yeah of runs scored versus the other. But yeah, no, the Pirates won the the three games, including the the home run in, in the in the seventh game by Bill Mazeroski. So yeah. And, and and a real lousy batting average. I mean, wasn't uh, weren't the Yanks like three sixty and the Pirates are like two fifty or something? Yeah, well, that's that's what happened when you when you run up the score in, in a game that you've that you've you're well ahead on. You can you can pad the statistics, and sure. and that's what that's what that's what happens. But yeah, no, it's a well, it, yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's an interesting analogy. I don't know if it's 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 exactly appropriate. No, but, it's not yeah. exact. I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I could see that. But the other thing is all this talk about you know dumping the electoral college and and going back to a popular you know direct democracy i mean we're we are a representative republic uh, let's not forget that but i would say this even if you did go to a direct democracy this election would have been totally different the dynamic of the campaigning where the candidates spent their time who's to say still wouldn't have won who's to say he would have he spent no time in california he would right. have been out here. He probably would have spent more in New York. Now, I'm not saying he would have won a majority of those states, but who's to say he couldn't have swung, you know, millions, hundreds of thousands of people in these states? I, I just don't think you can say statically that this popular vote proves that he doesn't, you know, have a mandate. I think that's just a false. Okay, well, all right, now I, I agreed with you until you, the use of the word mandate. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yes. I, d- I don't think that you can you can at all say that because the way the popular vote turned out that it would have turned out that way if the the rules that we were playing by from the very beginning were it was based on popular vote for exactly the reasons you cited. But I'm sorry, Ron, Mr. Trump does not have a mandate. <laughs> that 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 is that's not that's not true at all. Okay, well, maybe we can talk more about that, even though I don't have any of this stuff in my stack. But, uh, Ed, we need to take our first break. And, folks, we'd like to remind you, if you'd like to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. And please check out our show and show notes uh, at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also listen to the show and follow us on Twitter at hashtag asktsoe. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Is your website just a brochure, or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We are free riding here on The Soul of Enterprise. And, Ron, we're talking of U.S. election here. I know that they're probably turning off all of our listeners in non uh not in not in, not who in the USA, but uh, in Australia, we've got a lot of <laughs> listeners there. But but you said just curious before we get in, into. I want to talk about this this mandate non mandate thing. Are you were in Bogota, Colombia for the election, right? Yes, I was, and uh, and you to, said there's a ton of people who are really interested in it. Absolutely, every everybody in this particular firm that we were in uh, wanted to talk about it and and would ask us questions at lunch and breaks and things. Um, yeah, they were absolutely fascinated by it. And I, I think, Ed, because a lot of them, boy, a lot of the people in this firm had uh, either relatives or friends uh, that lived in, in the States. Um, mm-hmm. So, th- I mean, this goes beyond just a passing interest. You know, they have physical people on the ground, so they're they're really interested. And, of course, there's a lot of anti-Trump. I mean, it, you know, they were shocked and um, <laughs> so that was kind of, uh, that was kind of interesting, but yeah, no, I, I, and people I talked to in Canada, when we were up there, we got lots of questions about it. And even in Australia, when I was there earlier this year, so I, I, I do think people around the world are, are interested in it. Not that, you know, not that I want to sit here and talk about it, but <laughs> right, right, right. Well, okay. So let's, let's, let's talk about this, this, uh, this mandate thing, which the way I would define mandate is a, a, a certain amount of, of authority above and beyond what a normal election would hold. Would that is that how you're defining mandate? Yeah, I guess I, I guess there's a few different ways, a couple different ways you can define it, right? I mean, you could can certainly look at the electoral college vote, um, which has mm-hmm. nothing to do with raw numbers, I concede, but... Um, that is the way the system is set up, but you can also look at state legislatures and you can look at the sweep there. Right. And well, well, and here's, here's what I would throw into that whole thing is, you know, the whole popular vote thing, but, but you, we do still have to remember that the plurality of Americans voted for no one. Right. Yeah, sure. If you take into account the people that don't vote, don't vote at all. Right. Yeah, sure. (laughs) That's always been the case though. I mean, exactly. I, I don't. No, I don't mind I, people not voting. I really don't. If you're not informed, I'm not sure I want you to vote. No, I, well, I I agree with that, but I also I also think that what what would be an interesting law because I know you were with our colleague John Chisholm down down in Bogota, and you know they they have uh, in Australia they you have to vote right. It's a it's, it's a it's a law mandatory that you need to vote. And I, I'm not in favor of that at all. I don't think that that voting should be mandatory. It, it, you, you can't take something that's a right and say that you have to do it. Then it's no longer a right. I, no. <laughs> you know, by, by, by that logic, you know, and I've, it's funny who people who use that logic is it by that logic in the United States anyway, then everyone would need to have to own a gun. Right. <laughs> 
right? Yeah, Because it's exactly. a right. So, therefore, you must own a gun. Or, well, or buy health care. Uh, Jeez, right. that'll never happen. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the but I but I but I think that what we should do or what we could do is we could in certain states anyway pass laws that say, and unless you have a majority of the people vote, the who are and I would say registered. I would say once you registered that you you're saying yes, I want to participate in the system, right? So I would allow people that if they didn't register, then that wouldn't count. But once you registered to vote. If there wasn't a, a, a at least 50 percent of the, the, the people who were registered to vote for a candidate, that the winner of that race would be none of the above. And mm. you'd have to you'd have to you'd have to rerun it <laughs> mm. Mm. or or even better, it would sit empty <laughs> for the term. Well, I love that thought. <laughs> right. I mean, isn't it isn't it like Spain or Portugal that they, like they they haven't had a a, a a president or so or some some pretty top notch person for like eight months now and they're doing great. <laughs> it, oh, yeah, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I you know I think anyway the any of the million ways that you can structure a vote and the rules and first pass and you know all of that. I mean. It's such a flawed way to make a decision. Nobody would run our lives based on popular vote. You know, who to marry, what car to buy. And this is one of the things I think David Friedman was pointing out last week that, you know, if you look at the inequality within the government provision of goods and services like schools and police forces, um, it, it's not good because it is based on a zero-sum system. It's not based on a win-win uh, arrangement. No, that and that was a great point that that he made about that. No, I I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that, those thoughts. So, yeah, I just I, yeah, anything we do with voting is flawed. I mean, I just I, I question yeah, the whole well, thing. It's but, just and, a and you bring, terrible way to make decisions. And you bring up an interesting point though, because I had this conversation with a friend of mine, longtime friend of mine from way back from high school on, on Facebook about that. Because I don't know if you saw this, but Maine. Uh, passed a law that allows for ranked choice voting now mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. for a governor and a lot of the positions inside uh, the the uh, main legislature. And uh, th- for those of you who don't know, ranked choice voting allows you to put in order your the the choice of your candidate. So you act you rank you know I re- vote for this person first, this person second, this person third, this person fourth, and I th- I think it's a maximum of. Five. I'm not 100% sure about that, but there's a maximum of five people on, on, on the ballot, and they rank them. And then what happens is then the person who comes in last after all of those things are added up, that person fall, falls off the, the bottom. Actually, let me go back a step. It, if somebody achieves then a clear majority of the first position in, in that type of vote, they are clearly the winner. Right. 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 If that doesn't happen, then the person who finishes last, they drop, they're dropped from the race and then the numbers are rerun. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and then therefore they, they completely fall out giving then the next person a chance for a a total majority because the people who voted for that last person as number one, their votes are no longer counted, right? They were counted in the first round, but they're not counted in the second. You see, right, and this is known as instant runoff, right? And Mm -hmm. it's it's very easy to do with with the computerized systems that we have now. Anyway, I was telling telling this friend of mine about this, and she she said, "Well, this is really interesting." 
and I said, just out of, out of curiosity, how when when you're in in a business setting, when you when you're in a group, how do you make decisions? And she said, well, we usually just take a vote, and <laughs> and majority or plurality rules. And I and I said to her, I said, well, you, one of the things that that I've learned about this whole thing is, as as you said, this is a terrible way for groups to make decisions. And I really think in business, we've got to get away from this one person, one vote, first past the post decision making, yep, right? That, I agree. Ha- that happens in so many organizations. And, p- and people who are in business should really investigate if you haven't already, either was, you know, the rank choice v- voting that I just talked about, or, and I find this to be, uh, works really well uh, too, a- approval voting. And that is uh, for each of the things, the the items that are on the table that are being voted on, people can vote yay or nay, up or down on each individual one. And then in that case, the the, the, the item that gets the to- most total yes votes is the one that's considered the priority. Right, right. And, and, I, and I really think that those are much, much better ways of groups, especially in business, making decisions. And they're not difficult to do, especially in, in smaller in smaller groups, right? Yep. So um, the people should definitely investigate th- them. And then, of course, then the, the last one that I would throw out there it, is what's called N3 analysis. And I think we talked about this on a show a long, long time ago, so I don't feel bad talking about it again. But N, N3 analysis is, is specifically used when you have a lot of choices, you know, maybe dozens of choices, and you want to get narrow this down to a smaller subset and what you do is you take the number of choices on the list and you divide it by three. That's why it's called N3 analysis, the, the number divided by three. And then once you have those that, that number, everybody in the room gets that number of votes. So say you had 17 items on the list, right? 17 divided by three yields five. Everybody gets five votes and they mm-hmm. can put all five votes on any one of the 17 items, or they can put three on one, two on another, or one on five of them if they so choose. Right. And what I found with this type of voting, and this is great, absolutely great for brainstorming type meetings where you have a, a lot of issues that are being brought out and you want to narrow it down to maybe three or four, is that in every every time that I've ever used the N3 analysis to to limit the number of choices, it's worked fantastically. In fact, Ron, I did this. You'll appreciate this. This is about two years ago. I did a a um, a retreat with a bunch with an an accounting firm, and the the idea was to try to get them to do a strategic plan, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we and they threw they had a, you know lots and lots of items up on the list. It was something like 25, 30 different items. And I used this this N3 analysis in order to decide on the priorities to structure the rest of the day. And the managing partner came up to me after that that section because we took about an hour to get that done. And he said, "What spell did you cast on my partners?" <laughs> and he's like, "I was like, why?" He says, "Well, this is the first time we've ever been able to agree on the prioritization of anything in this firm." <laughs> well, yeah, no, I agree with you, Ed. We use, I mean, you, I've seen you do that uh, in, in some group settings, and I think we did it at a Verisage meeting once, and it did work really well i'm you know i'm just reminded of uh, margaret thatcher's line that consensus is the absence of leadership you know and and that voting is just such a poor poor thing but uh you know if you do have a group and you do need some type of 
consensus, then some type of weighting, like you suggest, I think is really, is, it really makes a lot of sense. I'm still enamored, by the way, with uh, Stephen Landsberg, uh, the economist that we had on, uh, his idea of being able to vote for one vote outside of your, your state, you know, or your district. So you no, could, congressional districts, right, right? Yeah, you could take out a senator in another state. You know, if there was just one real bad actor or somebody holding up everything, you could you could uh, <laughs> could take them out. But uh, yeah. I've always liked that. But again, I think anything you do with it is just still the the basic idea is just flawed. But like Winston Churchill said, it's better than all the other methods that have been tried. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, we're up against our next break. And coming up, Ron, in our next segment, we have Anthony Clark, and he's been on the show before. He is going to be talking to us about his thoughts on the election. As you you, uh, might recall, Ron, Anthony has a book on the presidential library. So we'll talk a little bit with him about what the uh, Barack Obama library, what's what's happening with that, as well as what uh, he thinks maybe the library for Donald Trump might look like. (laughs) Excellent. I look forward to Uh, it. And we'll hear that after this break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back here on The Soul of Enterprise, free riding on Friday, as is our custom for the last week and every month. Of course, the last week and every month is next week, but we're off for the Thanksgiving break. But with us now on the line is my dear friend from high school and the author of The Last Campaign, How Presidents Rewrite History, Run for Posterity, and Enshrine Their Legacies, Anthony Clark. Welcome back to The Soul of Enterprise. Great to be back, Ed and Ron. Thanks for having me on. 
Well, we are uh, thrilled to have you. This is uh, such a fascinating topic. Both Ron and I were, were really interested in, in, in your book. I guess you might have to, to write an, an, an additional appendix for a future version. But tell us a little bit about what's going on with the Barack Obama Library. Well, the library site has been chosen. It'll be in uh, Jackson Park, an historic park in Chicago. And uh, the recent presidential libraries have opened an average about four years after the president leaves office. So we expect a dedication ceremony around 2021. Um, but we don't expect, and we also expect the Obama records to be out in 2021, except they'll be 2121. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because uh, wow. it takes 100 years for the National Archives to process and release all the presidential records. Now, that isn't because of a statute or a prohibition on how fast things can come out. It just means that the National Archives and the presidential foundations place so much emphasis on getting a museum open with its kind of uh, very celebratory, fact-free uh, exhibits, and they hire museum specialists and curators and public affairs specialists and exhibit designers and uh, education specialists all to promote the legacy, but they hire very few archivists to process those records. And so, you know, it works out really well for former presidents that nobody really gets the chance to see the the, the really important records until the generations that elected uh, him have gone on to their reward. Wow, so a hundred years. And is that true going back now? So we're still working our way through, say, Reagan and Carter and Johnson and Nixon? Is, are they, they're still processing those records, or are we caught up on some of those? Well, technically, every presidential library has some records that haven't been released yet, either through the slow processing or through uh, the, the, the deed of gift that was, that, you know, that transmitted those papers to the library. But the big change happened in, with the Reagan administration because the law that was passed in the 70s took effect with uh, President Reagan's first term. And so from Reagan on, you know, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and Alabama, it'll take uh, an estimate of about 100 years. And so they haven't even gotten through, I mean, the Reagan Library opened in 1991. And they, they, aren't, they haven't even processed 75% of the records yet. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess Julian Assange will have to open up his own version of it first. So. <laughs> so well, that's the other thing, too. You know, when you think about electronic records, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but we don't know what presidential administrations are saving, and we don't know how they're saving it. And, you know, there's technical issues about whether the media on which they're being saved will even be accessible when they finally get around to opening them as, as well. Like for example, you know, there's the Clinton email scandal, but under George W. Bush, 22 million emails from the White House were lost because top senior officials in the White House used the Republican National Committee email servers instead of the White House servers, and the RNC says, whoops, we can't find them anymore. Yeah. And I'm but sure that there's the, stuff lying around on like floppy disks that were like, yeah, oh, say sure. somebody got a three and a half inch. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, they're, they're actually, they're, the presidential libraries across the country, starting from around uh, Nixon, they, they have legacy systems just for that reason, to be able to have it. Because you have to have the, the record copy, right? And you have to have the preservation copy. And then, of course, you don't want researchers working with the original records. So you have to give them a copy as well. So. But that's not yeah. really the focus for the next four years. The focus will be to design the exhibits and the public programming for the Barack Obama Presidential Library. And I think that last week's election completely changes those plans. If you think about when Bill Clinton 
was going through the impeachment scandal, that was the time when the Clinton Foundation was planning the library. And, you know, the Clinton administration had been full of stories about how Bill Clinton grew up in Hope and in Arkansas and his early career as attorney general and as, as governor and his, his electoral losses, how they taught him as much as the, his wins and then, you know, his, his romance with his wife and just the whole kind of history disappeared in the Clinton Presidential Library. And so when you enter that in Little Rock, the exhibit begins with January 20th, 1993. There is nothing about his former governmental career, his growing up, his difficult childhood, because when they were focusing on designing those exhibits, he was going through a character test. And that, that affected the way they decided to promote the Clinton Library, which was, this is what he did while president. Forget about him, the person. Mm. Anthony, this is Ron. Um, just out of curiosity, can can the public access some of these closed files through Freedom of Information or other filings, or are they just completely sealed? Well, it's funny you, ask, you should ask that. I, I have an example of someone making a request to the most recent presidential library that opened the George W. Bush, and they made it about uh, two years ago, and they asked for a single electronic record, and the archivists at the library returned a response that said, it's in the processing queue, and we estimate it will take 12 years for you to receive this through FOIA. Wow. And, well, here's the reason why. You've got 70 to 80 million pages of records at the presidential library, plus, you know, just hundreds of terabytes of data, right? So each of those pages has to be reviewed line by line to make sure that nothing is released that's classified, that's sensitive, that's uh, personally identifiable information. And so it isn't like they can just say, well, here's a folder. We can pretty, you know, be pretty certain, certain that it's okay to release. They have to look at every page. And sure. they only have one archivist at the George W. Bush Library reviewing those pages in, in, a, in a series. They have 10 responding to FOIA requests. They have one going through the series of records. And it's, it's a lot faster to process a series of records once you understand who the players are, whether they're are, um, you know, equity uh, classified issues with other agencies in this record, in this, you know, this record series. And so you can actually go through pretty quickly, but a FOIA request is stop everything that you're doing and try to find, even if we have these documents, and if so, where are they, and if so, how can I release them? And so that's, the FOIA processing really slows everything down, and the Reagan Library recognized that about 15 years ago, and decided to change that focus to say, no, we're going to put more archivists on systematically processing all our records because eventually if the records are out, you don't have to make a FOIA request. Hmm. You know, you, um, listening to you brought up an idea. I mean, it is, uh, in, in lawsuits with massive discovery, you know, millions of email documents, now we have deep learning systems, artificial intelligence that can sort through these things and pick things out and pick anomalies up. Do you see artificial intelligence coming in to, to play some of the role of what these archivists are doing, so maybe we could do it faster? Well, I think you'd have to have wholesale reform of federal IT procurement, because to give you one recent example, the National Archives tried to create what was called the Electronic Records Archives, which was a way to store and process for release born digital records. And uh, they spent $400 million on it, and it doesn't work. In fact, here's one example. They had uh, a hard line, a dedicated hard line out to West Virginia where the, the, the records would be stored, and they couldn't get the hard line to work 
And so when an agency brought in records, they would put them on a store-bought hard drive, put them in a van, and drive them out to West Virginia. And so I joked that the, through, the throughput of the Electronic Records Archive is between 55 and 65 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I'm not I'm not too confident in an organization that does something like that with trying to do something as sophisticated as AI or even just the kind of large scale um, uh, electronic discovery that law firms use every day. Right. Wow. Maybe we should maybe we should replace shovel ready jobs with with keyboard ready jobs, and we could just hire a bunch of archivists. What's well, the thing? I mean, the thing is that, that, that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pressure from presidents and their families to focus on getting that library open, and not a lot of pressure on getting the documents open. And so, one of the legislative changes that I suggest in the book is that you can just prevent the National Archives from accepting a new presidential library unless 75 percent of the unclassified records have been released, have been have been opened. And so, I think mm-hmm. if that were the case. I think you'd see a lot of pressure and a lot of support from presidents and their foundations to kind of get the archives to hire the 50 or 60 or 100 archivists that they need to do to get that work done. Wow. But what, wouldn't you, don't you need, certain, in order to open the library, don't they have to declassify, I guess, some of the things for the exhibits and, and that kind of stuff? Or is that just a separate, completely separate thing? Well, they do. That's certainly, I mean, that, it, that gets prominence, right? The, the, the designers will work uh, with the, okay. the curators and say, well, what, what can we put in? You know, what should we focus on? And so those get cleared. But, like, for example, for the first five years after a president leaves office, the law prohibits uh, any release of any records, not even through FOIA. And it was supposed to give the National Archives time to process the records, but five years is not time to process 80 million pages, especially when you've got one person working on it. <laughs> and so what happens is after that five years is up, the president can still withhold records up to an additional seven years as long as the president identified those record sets while they were president. So pretty soon the president, President Obama, is going to sign a, a document that says, I wish to exert executive privilege over the following sets of records for an additional seven years. Now, ever since that law was enacted in the 70s, presidents have done that after the, I mean, before they left office, but each president has eventually re- relaxed that restriction before the 12 years were up. So it's not as if the 12 years is actually, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an outlier, because most of them have, have uh, been able to release that uh, hold, say, like within seven to ten years. The problem is, having them release the hold doesn't mean that the National Archives has the bandwidth to process and release them. It just means that the president isn't exerting privilege. Wow. Anthony, this is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. Folks, the book is The Last Campaign, How Presidents Rewrite History, Run for Posterity, and Enshrine Their Legacies. We will put a link up to the book on our show notes. And uh, again, Anthony, thanks for being a guest. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks, Anthony. All right. And we will pick it up after this word from my employer, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S., 
These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're free riding Friday. And uh, I'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at Ask. T-S-O-E at Verisage.com. Ed's always fascinating to have Anthony on. I, I just love the topic of presidential libraries and all the inside knowledge he has of it. It's great stuff. Oh, his, he, he is truly probably the one of the experts in the world on that subject. And it is, to me anyway, extraordinarily fascinating. So, but... Anyway, that is me. What do you got? What do you got? In your All right, Ed, I'm I'm switching gears. I'm bored with this election Good. stuff already. Uh, <laughs> Good. I'm going to go to Rocket Man. I'm going to go to Elon Musk. Ah, who okay. Outlined his plans to colonize Mars within ten years. Back in uh, September, late September, at a speech he gave, and he said, "I'd like to die on Mars, just not on impact." No. <laughs> so Ed, his plans, his plans are. 100 passengers at $200,000 each. It's a six-month journey, he estimates. And the, why does he want to colonize Mars? Because it's a hedge against Earth-bound extinction. Mm-hmm. So he, along with Stephen Hawking, thinks that we're sitting ducks for a super virus or malevolent AI or nuclear war. Even the understated economist says this is claptrap. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 pretty strong from the economist. Um, they, you know, they say, well, why would any of these things wipe out humans on Earth and leave alone the humans on Mars? <laughs> right. But um, you know, to be able to do this, we'd have to live in pressurized buildings on Mars, and communications would be tedious back to Earth, although not impossible. You'd have to recycle nutrients and waste. I mean, you know, they tried this. Remember the biosphere? Oh, yeah. Experiments in the 1990s that were quickly abandoned because it just got ridiculous. And uh, Mm -hmm. now I have to say, this is is the angle I wanted to explore here on this, Ed. To do this, because, you know, 200 grand, I mean, not unreasonable, right? You could sell your house and go. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of his price point. That's kind of, I think, where he got this idea. And he said, but... But the government would have to open its checkbook. No, yes. Because, you uh, know, Mr. Musk has only gotten $1.3 billion in Tesla subsidies. 
Mm. He's got $4.9 billion in the last 10 years, according to the Heritage Foundation for his various companies like SpaceX, Tesla, and SolarCity. $4.9 billion is roughly half his wealth. He's gotten subsidies from the Export-Import Bank for payloads, uh, you know, for launching uh, SpaceX launches. And um, my only comment might be, it might be more impressive to show results here on Earth before you turn <laughs> to Mars, Mr. Musk. I, I just think this guy's a welfare queen, and we just need to cut him off. I, this no, is just I insane. agree. It's I- insulting. It is insulting, and I, I I find it bizarre that he is he is heralded as this entrepreneurial hero, when at least with his latest ventures, he's doing it by risking my money, not his. Well, he's risking yeah. his money too, but stop. But not much. Not no. And this is the same thing that with uh, you know T, our remember T Boone Pickens and yep. the plan of his. What was it? Ten, maybe eleven years ago. To, yep. to to extract natural gas and the shales and look and dude was right about it right that there, that there there is whatever a 10,000 years worth of natural gas that we can use and I'm, I'm quoting from memory that might not be the right number but uh, there's a there is a boatload of natural gas and it was trapped in the shale and he'd figure out ways of extracting it why did he want my money to be able to do it I don't get it I don't get it Ron I don't either, Ed, because if you have to subsidize anything, it's almost pointless. Mm-hmm. Because if something's got great promise, it'll find money. I mean, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. that's, so correct. that's what venture Raise capitalists the cap- do. Uh, exactly. They look for opportunities. And just because the government's subsidizing it first doesn't mean that the private market wouldn't have done it. You know, um, I just uh, it's just insulting. And then you have to drive around the uh, highways and see these Teslas that have license plates that say zero emissions. And I just think, how are you charging that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it yep. just, uh, Using just the electricity mind. from the coal-fired plants. But exactly. <laughs> I, I just, it boggles my mind. Uh, <clears throat> no, I know. I know. They are cool looking. I, they're cool looking. And they're fast. They're fast. They're fast. I, you know, there's, there's some good things about it. I just, it, it, you're right. I just, I, I don't appreciate the whole subsidy thing. It's I completely that 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 completely shocks me. And there's a lot of people, a lot of free market people who just hold up this guy as this 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 uh, the saint of entrepreneurship. And I don't know. yeah, I don't know if it's free market people or is it, is it the millennials? You know, the the people in the high tech community that just love them and idolize them. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I see a lot of negative press from free market people on this guy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. I know if you read the tech blogs and stuff, they idolize him, you know. But yeah. He did an appearance on the Big Bang Theory, you know. I mean, he's a rock star, but uh, he he's, also, star. he's also a welfare queen. Yep, yep. So, I mean, and some of his ideas are really good. I think I think the solar panel... Roof with that that is made out of the you know the the uh, in, instead of just panels but it, it it actually looks like a roof, it shingles. Yep. That are yeah. solar cells. I think that's a brilliant idea. I, I and and I I would look to do it on my house. I'm here in Texas. That's great. But I want to figure out a way to do it where I'm not being subsidized. I mean, oh, good luck because that whole industry is subsidized. I mean, it wouldn't exist if it wasn't. Uh, it, it's it's not economically feasible on its own. I, I don't know. It's just frustrating. 
Yeah, very, <laughs> very, very crazy. All right, what else you got, Ron? I, I, I really took way too much of this show on. No, 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 you didn't. I, I just, I, I had one thing. It was just a, a article from The Economist. You know, the quick and, it's called Quick and Dirty. It's from their October 8th issue. And they just talk about this. You know how we've talked about before, especially with Jules Goddard, the whole short-term versus long-term outlook of companies and everybody thinks they're too short-termism and all that. And, mm-hmm. and this article is just poo-pooing that. They're saying, look, this is the same system that's poured, you know, capital into Tesla and Uber, Amazon, you know, these companies haven't shown great profits or, or indeed any in the, in the event of Tesla. Um, you know, we do have a long-term interest, but S&P has a new index that claims it tracks firms with a long-term focus at three out of the 10 of its largest holdings or cigarette firms. <laughs> which may be outliving their customers for all the wrong reasons. I, I don't know about that, but um, you know, the, 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 the conclusion here from the economist anyway, and I, and I agree with this, they say the tension between short term and versus long term is what makes capitalism tick. And, and, and I do think the jury's out on the idea that we're, we're too short term focused. I, I've never bought that argument. Um, you know, now there's no doubt that tax, policy and other regulations can can drive short-term thinking i'm not saying it's not a factor but i just don't think that our markets are are that stupid or myopic where we won't invest for the long term it's a disconnect ron because i i I can tell you in in working with which with some larger organizations in my career that that the the middle layer of management does think does think short term and I don't know whether that's compensation systems that are based on quarters or years or whatever and that's what causes it or it, because what I hear a lot of is is well no but this is because what the street or the city is looking for the short term you know bang right. what are they doing first lately but yep. I, but but you're right the, 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 I think it's a, I think there's a disconnect in, in those two places and I think that's what that's what what's holding us up hey a last quick thing that I did have on my list that I want to very quickly mention I don't know if you've taken an uber lately ron you see they give you your price up front now okay excellent yep yep hey ed we're uh are we running a best of next week i think we are running a best of next week ron and we are going to be talking i think we we decided on trashing the timesheets did we not i think we did yeah it was a pretty popular show got a lot of good feedback so that's excellent so folks we'll see you in 167 hours This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, please check out our show at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will have full show notes up from today's show and the topics we discussed, including the uh, presidential libraries with Anthony and his book. Also, you can contact Ed and myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 